Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us uh, during our Christmas series. We just kicked off our Christmas series last week, and so we're in our second week. So thank you for joining us in the, during this holiday season. We're calling this Christmas series Merry Misfits. Merry Misfits. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at those characters that are often overlooked, that, that aren't necessarily mentioned a lot when we talk about the Christmas story. And we're calling them Misfits, And what we're finding is God loves to include these misfits in the Christmas story. There's a reason they're a part of the Christmas story. We saw last week the, the misfits that we pointed out, those often overlooked, were some of the names in the genealogy of Jesus, the, the family tree of Jesus. Matthew picks out certain names, and these names aren't, well, they're not very impressive people. They're, they're actually notorious sinners. They're people that have uh, uh, the carry the shame of, of, of sexual sin. We would call them misfits. But God is very merry to have mercy on these misfits. And we unpacked that idea last week and said this teaches us that Christmas is about, it's about mercy and not merit. It's about receiving God's gift of forgiveness. It's not about earning uh, our right standing with God. Well, this week, we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're going to pick a character and I think learn an incredibly valuable lesson. Now, this character may feel like he doesn't fit the mold of a misfit. He's not one that's often overlooked. But I think if we think about it for a moment, I, I think he actually is. See, this character is often overshadowed because of, uh, well, his family. The character I'm thinking about is Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary and the father of Jesus. Now, you may think, wait a second. He's always part of the manger scene. That's true, but let's be honest. I remember I was putting up our manger scene just like a week ago or two weeks ago. We did it a little bit early. And as I was doing it, I was going through all the porcelain figurines. I honestly could not tell you which one was Joseph. It was so hard to tell. And then I realized he just looked like a shepherd. He just didn't have a staff. He wasn't really kind of a hallmark character. Mary, baby Jesus, easy to find. Joseph, no, he was kind of just in the crowd of generic porcelain figures. See, I think often this is the case, that Joseph is really overshadowed by Mary and Joseph. And I think that's appropriate. But what's strange is Matthew doesn't do that. The gospel writer Matthew, the one we're studying during our Christmas series, Matthew loves to highlight Joseph. In fact, really, Joseph kind of takes center stage in the birth story of Jesus in the Christmas story. And what I want to invite you to do is this. I want you to place yourself in Joseph's shoes. I want us to kind of walk through some of his circumstances and ask ourselves the question, what would we do? I mean, really trying to immerse yourself in the story of Joseph. I did that this week as I was studying this passage, and I'll tell you there's a couple lessons that I learned. First lesson, Joseph is impressive, and I am not. The lesson I learned was Joseph is better than me. He's better than me. When I place myself in his shoes and I try to go through the circumstances he went through, I tell you, Joseph responded way better than I would. Joseph is better than me. But there's a second lesson I learned. That even though Joseph is impressive, even though he's better than me, he's still not good enough. He's not good enough. He's not good enough to be right with God. He still needs a Savior. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write that down. Kind of the main idea of our passage this morning, the main idea of the message this morning is this. 
better than is not good enough. Better than is not good enough. And I think we learn this if we really try to immerse ourselves in the story of Joseph. And really, you can expand this out. This principle applies to us. That just because we could find somebody that we're better than, it doesn't mean that we're good enough. Even if we try to create this kind of morality that makes us feel really good about ourselves based on this better than idea, we can always find somebody who's a little more uh, broken than us. We can always find somebody who's not performing as well as us morally. We can always find somebody that we're better than. But that doesn't mean that we are good enough to be right with God. Let me show you how we learn this lesson in the story of Joseph. Somebody who I think is better than me, but he's still not good enough. He still needs a Savior. Let's start. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 18, picking right up from where we left off last week. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child. Now stop here. It says she was found to be with child. What does that mean? What is that expressing to us? Something has been found out. Now, maybe at first we would read this and think, wait a second, is this is this, a, a, the plot has been uncovered, you know? Mary was concealing something. She was hiding something. She was lying to Joseph. She was trying to uh, keep her uh, baby bump from coming out too much. And so she's trying to keep the truth from Joseph. I, I don't think we should read that this way. I don't, I don't think that's the way to understand the language here. I think what this is trying to express is not necessarily what Mary is doing, but rather what has become apparent to Joseph. Joseph has found this out. He was not told by Mary. He noticed it in Mary. He saw her condition. We're told later, and we'll get to this in verse 20, when it talks about the angel that visits Joseph. The angel tells Joseph, hey, you, sh- you should still marry her. Don't divorce her. You should still marry her. Do this because what has happened is from God. Notice how the angel does not say, no, 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 everything she told you is true. He doesn't defend Mary. He doesn't assume there was a conversation between Mary and Joseph. So I think it's fair to assume Joseph has not had a conversation with Mary so far. He has found this out. He was not told. The angel does not say later, don't you remember the conversation? Believe her. She's telling the truth. Her story is real. No. He doesn't know about this virgin conception until the angel tells him. Mary didn't tell him at first. That's the way it appears to us here in the Gospel of Matthew. Now imagine finding this out. Try to place yourself again in Joseph's shoes. Let's just say you uh, will make it kind of more modern. You go out with your friends. You have your future bride with you. It's you're all sitting around the table, and your bride, your future bride, orders onion rings and a side of peanut butter. And you think, wow, that's really weird, right? She just devours this very odd appetizer, and then she excuses herself to 
go to the restroom. And as she's walking away from the table, you realize that her, her figure looks a little bit different than before. And as you turn back and look at your friends, your friends are staring at you as if their eyes could ask questions. And you are both thinking the same thing. You both know that she's pregnant. This odd appetizer, this crazy kind of craving, and then her curves being a little bit different have now brought clues before you that something has changed. She's pregnant. And without saying a word, your friends feel like you're not telling them something. And then you feel like she's not telling you something. Imagine the level of embarrassment. And then imagine just the level of heartbreak. I mean, this is, this is the girl you love. This is your bride-to-be. Now, in our context, we would say, well, they're engaged, they'll just break it off, and, and it'll be over. You see, but the context is a little bit different here in first century Judaism. It says in verse 18 that they were betrothed. Now, we shouldn't read that as engagement. It's like engagement, but it's not like engagement. There's much more of a contractual obligation here. There's a kind of a a legally binding format to this agreement. This idea of betrothal already means that Joseph is her husband. That's why in verse 19, it calls Joseph the husband. Even though they're betrothed and they have not yet got to that marriage ceremony, there's a commitment that has been made. It's about a year-long commitment from what we can tell in reading about first century Judaism. It's a year-long commitment. The husband is already considered husband, but the wife hasn't yet moved in. But in order to break this kind of arrangement, it wasn't like just giving back the engagement ring. No, not for them. There are only two ways out of a betrothal. You either die, and then the other person becomes a widow, or you divorce. So that's the kind of kind of strong agreement and kind of arrangement that's been taking place. So for Joseph, he has to just feel not only has he been betrayed by his future bride, but now the options before him are going to be incredibly disruptive, just just emotionally burdensome. I mean, this boy's heart is broken, and he has to do something about it. But what are his options? What can Joseph do? Well, we look at how the Jews practiced kind of divorce and a response to adultery. From what we could tell in first century Judaism, many Jews believed that Joseph was forced to divorce. He, he didn't really have an option. Mary has become uh, ineligible to, to be wed to Joseph. So he, his hand is almost forced Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 22, we're told that Joseph could have her stoned. This could receive the death penalty, if you will, adultery. Now, we see later in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's two chapters after Deuteronomy 24, that divorce could be pursued. So not stoning seems pretty, uh, pretty big there, right? But also divorce was an option. So the options before Joseph are, okay, well, I I could have her stoned. I could kind of move that. That would be a little uh, strange and odd in the first century world from what we know of how they did their practices. But that's an option before him. Now, if we place ourselves in Joseph's shoes, right, maybe in the heat of emotion, we would kind of want to pick up a rock, right? I mean, our heart is broken. 
We're hurting inside. Our reputation has been spoiled, and our love has been destroyed. Maybe we maybe feel like responding in violence. The other option is divorce. Now, this can be done publicly. It can be done privately. Publicly, this would kind of uh, spare Joseph uh, his reputation. He could make it known kind of in a court and, and show clearly the evidence is there. That, that she has committed adultery. So he would kind of free himself from having a soiled reputation. He could do that. The other option was to do this privately. So instead of having kind of a, a large number of people knowing, all he needed technically was two witnesses to witness and certify the divorce. So ask yourself, if you're Joseph, what's your response? Right, the extreme over here of having her stoned, the other extreme over here of divorcing her quietly, privately, before a small group of people, two people, or maybe doing it publicly. Like, I think if I'm honest, like probably that, that middle option might be where I'm at. I'm hurt. I, I, I'm wounded. I, yeah, it's much kinder than something violent like stoning, but it still shows the severity of the sin that occurred. Well, what does Joseph decide? Verse 19, and her husband Joseph says, being a just man, which means he loved the law. He didn't want to make light of sin. He was a just man. But listen to this, and unwilling to put her to shame, even though it seems very apparent that she has put him to open shame. It's become obvious to him that she's pregnant, which you'd have to venture a guess, an educated guess, that if he knows it, others probably do as well. So this is probably a little more public than just Joseph knowing. But he says unwilling. He's unwilling to put her to shame. So what does he do? It says he resolved to divorce her quietly, privately, kind of settle out of court, if you will. So how do you stack up? Would you do the same thing? Joseph seems like a pretty impressive guy. He's kind. He's patient. He still loves the law. He doesn't want to make light of sin, but he is a merciful, kind, and caring man. And he chooses the option that is least damaging to the one who has just brutally wounded him. At least that's how it appears. Now, it's hard to say what we would do in that situation, right? None of us, or maybe some of us, but I have personally not been in that situation before. Now, I've been in a situation that's somewhat like it. I remember when uh, I was in uh, my mid-20s or, or later 20s, I was working here at Valley Bible Church. I was working as a youth pastor here, and I was driving home from leading youth group, and, and I get a call as I'm driving um, driving home, and I, I pick up the phone, and there's just uncontrollable sobbing on the other end. And I could hardly understand a single word that was being said to me. I, I could make out that it was my, my friend, my, my good college friend. I could, I could make that much out. And then after, I would say, probably 10 minutes of trying to decipher what he was saying in between his cries, he told me, she left. She left. She left me. 
And I thought to myself, wait, what, is, what does this mean? What is, what is he saying? And from that moment, the days would unpack what that meant, that she left. And it was a shock to me. It sickened me. I was extremely sad for my friend. But as the days went on, more and more started to be unpacked. And we started to realize that this wasn't a moment of indiscretion. This wasn't just a a moment of an affair, a, a moment of adultery, one act of adultery, but rather this had been a a lifestyle that was hidden to us for months, for years. She had been unfaithful to her husband. The more and more we learned and started to kind of place a timetable over the events that were now coming clear to us, I realized that, that, that we, as, as a group of friends, had actually gone out to a lunch and we, we ate together. We ate together literally hours, hours after she had committed infidelity. Hours after she had been unfaithful to her vows. Hours after, I sat across the table from her, looked her in the eye, engaged in conversation with her. It, 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 it just sickened me. And the more we knew, the more angry I got. Now, I, I like to, to consider myself a, a kind, a loving, and forgiving person. But in a sober judgment of my response to that situation... If I were to place myself in this situation, what would I do? I don't think I'd be like Joseph. I think he's better than me. I think the entire intention of his not to shame her would not be an impulse in me. Now, I'm not saying that I would be violent or anything like that, but I don't think I would be concerned about her shame concerned about her reputation, a reputation that she has apparently soiled. It's not my job, it's not my job to clean that up. I think Joseph, right here, he's better than me. And ask yourself the question, how do you fare in comparison? Would you say that Joseph is better than you? Well, God stops the divorce from happening. He gives Joseph a dream. And in this dream, this dream not only stops the divorce from happening, but then God shows him the responsibility that he wants to place on Joseph. I mean, God gives him a task that is just immensely heavy. To shoulder the responsibility that God is going to give him would take an extreme amount of courage. One I don't honestly think I would be up for. All right, but let's look at, let's try to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes again and see in this next encounter how we fare in comparison. Are, are, are we better than him? Is he better than us? How would we fare in this next encounter? Look at verse 20. But as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now stop, this is significant. We don't want to read past this too quickly here because 
This small phrase, Joseph, son of David, gives us a clue as to what God is asking Joseph to do. Okay, let's just look at those few words there. Joseph, son of David. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, oftentimes you'll see that that people are referred to by their first name and then like their father's name. So I would be Paul, son of Larry. Right? The idea would be that you're narrowing the group of who, who Paul. What, what Paul are you talking about? Are you talking about Paul McCartney, right? Are you talking about Paul Crandall? Who are you talking about? But not having necessarily last names, they, they would take a referent from their father's name. My father's name was Larry. So you would say, Paul, son of Larry. Now what's happening with Joseph here? Is the angel referring to Joseph by not only his first name, but also his father's name? No. Joseph's father's name is not David. David is an ancestor of Joseph, and he is about a thousand years removed from Joseph. Well, then why use that? Right? I imagine somebody trying to narrow down your name by using an ancestor a thousand years removed from you. I mean, I don't know many of us that could trace our genealogy that far back. I don't know if there's actually records that would help us actually do that. So clearly what the angel is doing, he's not trying to narrow just which Joseph he is talking about. Why does he say Joseph, son of David? We've got to go back and look at last week. Last week, as we saw this kind of family tree of Jesus, this was the family tree of Joseph first, then the family tree of Jesus. And in that family tree, who's there? King David, because God made a promise to King David that a king would sit on his throne and God would establish his kingdom forever. This is what the Jews were waiting for, a messianic king, an anointed king, somebody who would come and would be of the lineage of David and who would establish God's kingdom forever. So what the angel is saying to Joseph, Joseph, here's how Jesus will be of the family tree of David. If you bring him in as your son, to use a modern-day word, if you adopt this baby Jesus, then he will be of of the lineage of David. If you do not, then Jesus is not connected to David. Prophecy will not be fulfilled. In a sense, baby Jesus needs Joseph. He needs Joseph to adopt him so he could have the lineage of King David, just as the Old Testament prophecies foretold. This is why the angel brings this term up. He's saying, Joseph, I need you to take Mary, and I need you to take the baby as your own. Joseph, son of David. Look at the rest of the verse. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God has intervened. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit is, is, is spoken as this kind of creative uh, a person that, that moves on behalf of God the Father. We see it in, in Genesis in the creation of everything. We see it in the creation of, of new spiritual life. So there's no surprise here that the Holy Spirit, uh, the, one of the persons of the Trinity, is involved in bringing together this kind of human nature and the pre-existent nature of the Son, the God nature of the Son. He's now infusing the human nature and the God nature. Now he's making one person with two natures. 
So the Holy Spirit is involved in this, and this is what the angel is saying to David. David, or sorry, saying to Joseph, Joseph, there is no restriction on you. You don't have to divorce her. You don't have to. I know there's pressure on you to say, no, she's not eligible anymore for your love. But no, no, that, that is not true because this baby is not born out of an act of adultery. This baby is because of divine intervention. The Holy Spirit is involved here, and a God-man will about to be born. That's what's happening. So Joseph, take this child to be your own son. Take Mary to be your wife. Now, the angel is going to name the names that Jesus will have. Jesus, and then another name as well. And in giving these names, it's going to show us again the task that Joseph has laid at his feet. And it is an immense responsibility. I would say an immense burden for him to shoulder. One I don't think I would be capable of doing. So ask yourself again, try to immerse yourself in the story of Joseph. This angel has come to you, called you son of David, showed you the importance of the decision that is before you. And then he says, let me tell you about this baby Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit. But the names of Jesus even further emphasize the character and nature of this baby. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. This is important. Joseph calling Jesus this name, Joseph giving him a name, is an act that would, be, that would show that he is adopting Jesus as his son. You sh- she shall bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This is what the name of Jesus means. Jesus is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, and Joshua means God is salvation or God saves. So this is telling us what is Jesus going to do? This baby Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. So God is telling Joseph, Joseph, just to be clear, I want you to raise the Savior of the world. Now imagine, just imagine for a moment, if someone were to reveal to you the destiny of your child. Let's say uh, you're about to have a daughter. And somehow, divinely, a a messenger from God comes and says, your daughter is going to be the president of the United States of America. Think about the pressure you would feel. Now you're thinking, man, I I better not mess this up. I mean, you you would look at every parenting challenge totally different. You would feel the burden of parenting probably double if somebody told you that your child was going to have that type of influence. So imagine if in a dream an angel comes to you and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to adopt this baby as your own. And this baby, by the way, is going to save the world from its sin. I mean, what greater task is there? What higher calling is there? What harder thing to do is there than save humanity from its sin? 
And yet this is what Joseph is asked to do. But this baby is even more than that. Even more than the Savior of the world. So if that's not burdensome enough, if you're not already feeling anxious for Joseph, you already don't have like this knot in your stomach for Joseph, look the next thing that the angel reveals to him. It says, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, this is either Matthew speaking as kind of a narrator, or this is continuing the speech of the angel. It's actually hard for us to tell in the Greek manuscript. But we, right now, it's kind of announced, or punctuated for us in the ESV as if Matthew is making the narration. But it's really hard to tell what's going on. I favor actually the one that says that this is the angel actually communi- continuing to communicate. Now, it doesn't really change much of our reading. It's just kind of an interesting thought to think about. So, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's going to quote Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Jesus is going to be called Jesus. If you're going to refer to him, you would use the name Jesus. But now the angel, or Matthew, is now saying, or, and picking up on what Isaiah had prophesied, that he would be known. I don't think he's going to be called this, but it's kind of more, he's going to be named, and he's going to um, have this function, this role. He will be Emmanuel, which Matthew nicely translates for us as God with us. Now, what is this? This is from a prophecy all the way in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, and really all the way to 11, there's a child that is spoken of. And this child is incredibly significant. In in chapter 7, this child is first kind of given as a sense of relief to a king who's experiencing, man, just kind of dread from these other two kings that are about to invade his land. And so the child is given as a sign, a sign that God will intercede on behalf of this king. This king is named Ahaz. And he's just, he's just worrying about these other two kings that want to uh, commit war against him. And God says, no, I'll deliver you and I'll give you a sign. A baby will be born and he will be called Emmanuel. And before this baby is old enough to know right from wrong, these kings will not be a problem. So at first glance, it seems like what's being talked about here for Isaiah is that a baby is going to be born in Isaiah's time, and before this baby is like two or three or so, before they're able to know right and wrong, these kings will go away. But then Isaiah picks up this idea of Emmanuel, picks up this idea of a baby being born, and he expands it even further. And in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9, look at what this baby is called. Verse 6 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's really cool here, and the Bible does this on several occasions, We often refer to it as kind of a double fulfillment. What the Bible will do is it will speak of a prophecy that kind of has a a pinpoint application in the present. But then it alludes and hints at a, what would you call, a, a further kind of fulfillment. This is what's happening here. There's a baby that's going to be born to a young woman. 
And before this baby is two or three, Ahaz will be delivered from his calamity. But then that kind of zooms out and expands out. And Isaiah takes this idea and continues on and says, but let's speak about ultimate deliverance here. Not just deliverance from kings that they threaten us. No, Ahaz, there's going to be a bigger movement of God. This is just a small glimpse of that. But God has bigger plans. Matthew loves to do this. We see he actually does it in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew. He speaks of a prophecy in the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And he's talking about when he took Israel out of Egypt. But then Matthew quotes it in reference to Jesus. What is he doing there? Again, it's the idea of double fulfillment. In Hosea, he's speaking about Israel and the deliverance there. But then Matthew uses that as a reference to Jesus because he's seeing a picture in the Old Testament. And then he's expanding that out and showing how that's just a shadow to who Jesus Christ is. Is. It's a little complicated to think of, but Matthew loves to do this. He loves to see patterns in the Old Testament and show how they have their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Isaiah is doing as well. Kind of Isaiah and Matthew are moving on the same kind of wavelength. They see, yes, God will deliver from this present calamity, but then God's deliverance will come And he'll put a government on the shoulders of this child that'll grow to be a man. And this Emmanuel, this God with us, will be called Wonderful Counselor, who will be called Mighty God. This is not just a child born to a woman during the time of Ahaz, 735 years before the birth of Jesus. No, this this is much bigger. This, This needs a bigger fulfillment. And what Matthew is saying is, baby Jesus is that fulfillment. So not only do you have to raise the Savior of the world, Joseph, but the Savior of the world that you are going to raise is literally God with us. This baby is God's son and is God. He is a member of the Trinity. Now how heavy does that burden feel. Not only are you going to raise the one that will have the most significant impact on humanity, Savior of the world, but you are going to raise the one who created all things. You are going to raise the one who has power to do anything he pleases. You are going to raise the God-man who will save the world. Now, I know you're thinking, Paul, If I put myself in Joseph's shoes, clearly he's had a dream, a divine dream, and angels are in this dream, and they're giving him all these things. I would be so impressed by the dream, so impressed by this kind of angelic uh, 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 conversation that clearly I'd do whatever they say. I'm not so sure. Here's why. One of the most famous commissions in the Old Testament, the commissioning of Moses, has Moses staring at a burning bush And God is speaking to him through a bush that is burning but not consumed. And you know what Moses says to the burning bush that is speaking to him? He says, yeah, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I don't don't feel like I'm up for that task. So just because you're impressed by this divine, miraculous encounter doesn't mean necessarily that you take on whatever the obligation is. And if I'm honest, 
I'm not sure I would do what Joseph is going to do. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He did everything the angel told him to do. Do you think you would do that? I don't know. Now, again, it's hard to say I'm not in that situation. But I think, honestly, I would feel so incredibly overwhelmed with the weight of responsibility just placed on me by God to raise the Savior of the world and to raise the God-man. I remember when I brought home our first child, our little Alexine. When Alexine was born, man, that was just an incredible moment. I was around like 25 years old, but I acted like a 17-year-old. I was here at Valley Bible Church, and so many of you may remember this story, but I remember when Allie was born and we were leaving Kaiser in Vallejo. I remember leaving, and as we're walking out of the hospital, and I had her in the little baby car seat, right, the little bucket car seat, I remember feeling like I was stealing the baby, like this was not my baby, like they should not let me leave with this child. Like, this is not a smart idea. A a, a reasonable person wouldn't let me take this child home, wouldn't let me be responsible for another human being. And I I remember putting her in her car seat and, and, and nervously trying to get all the buckles correct, and there's like this nurse inspecting me do this, and it took me probably 30 minutes just to get her in the car seat Right? And then I remember uh, I'm about to drive away, and the nurse is walking away, and I'm thinking to myself, will you come back? Like, will you come back and just say, hey, guys, hey, guys, hey, we're just kidding. You guys can't do this. We'll take the baby till she's a little bit bigger, and then when you get your act together, we'll reunite you. Like, part of me was hoping that the nurse would just turn around and say it was all a joke. Hey, I got this. Of course she didn't, and I drove away. We went to our uh, a house here in Hercules, and I remember driving to Hercules, and I felt like I forgot how to drive. I felt like I forgot how to turn on my turn signal. I was like white-knuckling the steering wheel. I was driving probably like 35 miles per hour on the freeway. Like, I, I just, I was so overwhelmed by the experience and the burden and responsibility of raising another human being. I got her home, and things didn't get that much Better. I remember I was giving her her first bath, and, and I was giving her her first bath, and I placed her in kind of the warm water, and then she peed. She peed in the water, and I remember doing this so vividly. I remember doing this. I lifted her out, and I looked at my wife, and I was thinking to myself, well, what do I do now? Like, what do I do with this dripping baby, and where can I place this dripping baby so I can clean up the mess that this dripping baby just made? And I remember looking at Allie and then looking at my wife and then looking back at Allie and then this moment, and this will stay in my mind forever. I'm holding her and kind of doing this kind of double take with my wife and my daughter. And I feel like my daughter, who's just a newborn, she looks at me, looks at my wife, then looks back at me as if to say, will you help this guy? Like he has no idea what he's doing. Somebody get me with a responsible adult. And it's true, man. Being a father for the first time is scary. Add on to that that your child is destined to be the savior of the world. 
Add on to that that this child is God, your creator? I don't know if I'd be up for it. I was hardly up to raise a human girl. A God-man? I'm not so certain. I don't know about for you, but for me, I would have to say, I think Joseph is better than me. I think he's really impressive. I do. I think he deserves to have his own porcelain figurine that doesn't look like all the other generic shepherds. I mean, the guy first is kind and loving. From what he can tell, from his vantage point, it looks like his betrothed, his wife-to-be, has committed adultery, has been unfaithful. And what's his concern? His concern is for her reputation. He's not really concerned about himself. He takes the path of least resistance that's placed upon him and says, no, I want to be kind to you, still a lover of the law, and follow my God, but be kind to you. I I don't know if I'd do that. He's better than me. And then God, when God gives him this just giant responsibility to do one of the most significant things that a human being would ever do in the Bible, to raise the Savior of the world, to raise the God-man, and he's up for the challenge, just like that, just up for the challenge. He does it. I don't know if I'd do that. But as good and impressive as Joseph is, he's still not good enough. He's still not good enough. It's true, yes, Joseph, or, or Jesus needs Joseph. He does. Jesus needs to be in the family line of David, so he needs Joseph to adopt him. But Joseph needs the baby Jesus. Joseph needs his son more than his son needs him. He's called Jesus. Why? Because he saves his people from their sins. And one of those persons is his father, is Joseph. Joseph is better than me. Maybe you've concluded that he's better than you, but he's still not good enough. He's still not good enough. He needs a savior. He needs his son. He needs his sins to be forgiven. This is an incredible lesson to learn. That better than is not good enough. Joseph is better than me, but he's still not good enough to be right with God. He needs a Savior. But we can expand this out. That whole idea of being better than someone else is not good enough. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade you in judgment to your neighbor. He grades you against a different standard. He grades you against his law. And when he grades you against his law, none of us, none of us are good enough. This idea of trying to make a moral system based on being better than the person next to us is not a system that God validates. It's not a system that God is a part of. It's not a system of God's creation, and it's not a system that God will honor. It's a system that makes us feel better, but it's a man-made system of pride. If I'm just better than the person next to me, then I'm okay. But that is a foolish way to live our lives, and one that will find us in a very disappointing ending at the end of our lives. Because God does not see us like this. We can all say we're better than somebody. 
But it doesn't matter because it's not good enough. So how do we live out this principle? Better than is not good enough. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I think it's important to remember the great virtue of humility. Humility. Yes, as, as, as Christians, when we start to follow Jesus, we come to this very, very, we come to Christ in a very humble posture. We say to ourselves, hey, I may be better than this person, but I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. According to God's standard, I'm not good enough. So we start the Christian faith in a very humble posture. But we need to continue that humble posture. It's not just how we start. That's how we walk the Christian life. Pastor Matt and I were just talking about this a couple of days ago when we were setting up for Christmas in Hercules. And we were reflecting on the idea that, that we feel that there are many out there who think that, that after they've accepted the work of Jesus Christ, that all the hard work is now up to them. That you needed Jesus in the beginning but your need for him has diminished now that you've made that exchange, right? Now that your sins have been forgiven, now that you've placed your faith in him and he's forgiven you of your sins, now it's your job to do all the work. But this is not true. It's not true at all. We reflected on the passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says we need to work out our salvation, with fear and trembling. Look, there it is, right there, right? Do the hard work. And that is true. The Christian walk is one we are supposed to put hard work into. But look at verse 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, we need to work, but we are only able to work because he is working in us. We need to maintain that very humble posture that we are not good enough at the start and we are not good enough to finish. There's not enough in here to keep our faith pure, to keep ourselves right, to keep ourselves in good standing with God all the way to the end of our life. We need Him. We may be better than that person over there, but we're not good enough to finish the race of faith. We need God to continue to work in us. So my challenge for you this week is to pray a very simple and humble prayer. The prayer is this. God, help me be what you want me to be. God, help me be what you want me to be. God, help me be what you want me to be. I know personally, if I'm just being honest with you, I know I have not been a great father and a great husband during this pandemic, during this whole moving my family away from their school, away from their friends, in the middle of this, well, not the middle, but the beginning of all these lockdowns. So I moved my family up here, and, and they respond, well, God is calling us, God is moving us. They saw God validate the entire process, their game, they're on board. We get up here, and everything shuts down. Hey, you're going to come back and see some of your friends that you know. You're going to see all these people. Now we get up here, and we can't see anybody. We can't be in the church that we are longing to be in. 
And now we have to adopt a whole new strategy to schooling. And now we have to do homeschooling. We have to balance all of these pressures of trying to figure these different things out. And then it seems like everything is always on fire up here. I mean, good golly, right? And it just seems like it's everything on top of everything. You, you take away friends. You take away school. And for a moment, like a week took away the sun. We couldn't even see it because all the smoke. And I know in this kind of pressure cooker of a situation, I know, I know that I have not been the most patient husband and I have not been the most patient father. I know that. My kids know that. If you don't believe me, ask them. God, help me to be what you want me to be. I can't parent the way I need to parent in this pandemic without God's help. I can't be a husband the way I should be a husband without God's help. But that should not be a a surprise to me. Why? Because I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Sure, I may be doing better than others, but I'm not good enough. And that's okay. Because God can work in me to make me be what he wants me to be. So I want to challenge you this week. Maybe it's a time where you get stressed or a time where you just, oh man, you're just feeling the pressures of life. I want to encourage you to pray that prayer. Maybe in the heat of that moment, God, help me to be what you want me to be. I'm not good enough to be what I need to be. So Father, help me to be what you want me to be. Maybe you're listening to this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what I think one of the biggest hurdles I encountered when I first started following Jesus. And I think one of the biggest hurdles that that many have before they start following Jesus, and that's this. It's the simple fact of admitting that you need a Savior. Admitting that you're not good enough. But you see, this is really the kind of first step, or one of the first steps of following Jesus is, is admitting that you need him. Admitting that you're not good enough. And I I can't tell you how many conversations I've had trying to introduce people to Jesus. And I get this phrase, and it kind of comes out as, hey, I mean, I'm better than so-and-so. Why do I need a Savior? I'm better than this person. Why do I need forgiveness of sins? I mean, I'm better than this person. Why do I need to worry if I'm right with God? I'm better than this person. Better than is not good enough. It's not good enough. I don't think any of us measured against Joseph would find ourselves to be more impressive than him. Now, maybe there's somebody out there. But either way, it doesn't matter. Because Joseph wasn't good enough. And we're not good enough. And you're not good enough. When we compare ourselves to God's law, that's when we see it. Not our neighbor, but God's law. God's law says don't lie. Don't steal. Don't lust. Don't covet. I mean, how many of us can say that we've got a passing grade on all of those? Don't lie. Never. Never say something that's not true. Oh, man. Don't steal. Don't take anything. Right? I mean, if you're about my age, what about Napster? Right? What about all those songs you downloaded illegally? Right? I mean, don't steal. Don't take anything. Anything? That means don't cheat on your taxes. That means don't... Don't take anything small from somebody else. Don't take something, you know, irregardless of its value. Don't illegally download stuff online. I mean, it's, I mean, that's a hard one there in our modern world. 
The Bible says don't commit adultery, but Jesus said if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Don't lust. Don't ever look at somebody with lustful intentions in your heart. Who could pass that test? Don't covet. Don't ever want something that somebody else has so much you'd want to take it from them. That's even before theft, before you actually take it. Wanting it inappropriately is wrong. How many of us are doing that this Christmas season? I think every Christmas ad is probably trying to elicit you to covet the thing on the ad. You see the person with that car, now you want that person's car. I mean, set against that standard. Who of us could say we're good enough? What about the one that says, don't put any gods before me. Don't put anything in first place in your life but God. Oh, man. I mean, that's got to be all of us. It's hard. It's hard to admit that we need help. It's hard to admit that we need a Savior. It's hard to admit that we're not good enough. But I'll tell you, it is one of the central confessions of Christianity. And this whole book, no matter how many times you read it, won't make any sense until you come to that kind of confession moment and say, I'm not good enough. Because this book's aim is not to improve you, but to save you. And until you admit that you're not good enough, you won't seek it as something to save you. You'll seek it as something maybe to enhance you, to improve you. But that's not its its intent, and it's not good enough. I know it's hard to swallow, but let me tell you, that confession, admitting that, that you're not good enough, is the beginning of the freeing message that God is good enough, and God has been good to you, merciful to you, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, so you can be forgiven. So my prayer for you this Christmas season is that you would receive the gift of God's forgiveness, and you'd first receive that by confessing that you need it, confessing that you're not good enough. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the wonderful story of the birth of your son. It blows us away. It blows us away that you would include us. Include us in this wonderful story of rescue. We see all of these characters. Some are very impressive, and others are not impressive. And all these characters you include in your story. Father, you want to include all of us in your story. Your story of redemption. Your story of salvation. Your story of forgiveness. Father, we are humbled. We are humbled. Even those of us who who have maybe lived a very upstanding life, a very morally pure life, even those of us here who could say that we're better than most of our friends and family members, we're still not good enough to be right with you. We're still in desperate need of your mercy. And you have given it to us in abundance through the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to be humbled, to be humbled by your mercy. Help us to pray that prayer 
Father, help me. Help me be what you want me to be. And Father, for those that don't yet know you, they wouldn't call you, Father. I pray that you are reaching out to them right now, even as I'm praying, that you're confirming in their heart, not that you are here to insult them, to say that they're not good enough. You're here to free them. You're here to show them that they're in desperate need of a Savior, but you are eager to save. It's not an insult for somebody to say, I'm here to help, because help is what we need. Oh, Father, I pray that you'd help them see, give them a sober judgment of their spiritual condition, and show them your wonderful love that frees them in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We want to thank you for joining us this Sunday and look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.